It's Lawrence. Yeah, welcome. It's great to see everybody here this evening. Like Lawrence said, we are continuing on with um, First Peter. We are kind of in the thick of it now in chapter three. So I thought maybe before we get into these, you know, light, easy verses to work through, maybe we'd kind of remind ourselves of where we are at in First Peter. Um, so. George has been working through uh, 1 Peter, just a reminder, Peter's writing this letter to likely literally exiled Christians in Asia Minor who were experiencing suffering, and during the first part of the letter, Peter is really focusing on their identity, that they are chosen by God, that they are beloved, that they are a royal priesthood, that they are a holy nation that they are a people for his own possession. And then in chapter 2, he kind of turns a corner and starts to get into how to live in light of who they are and who God is to them. And as he turns that corner in chapter 2, he starts talking about, right, the, the to-dos. But even then, he first addresses his audience. Even when he's getting into, here's what you ought to do then, he says, the first way he addresses them is as beloved. So as we read this passage to Christian wives, it's beloved Christian wives. Um, next, he addresses the Christians again as sojourners or foreigners or exiles. He's reminding the Christians that, they're, that they are first citizens of God's kingdom. And they're not going to feel at home in this society at the same time, though, he's not calling them, like, out of the society, right? George, last week, worked through different systems, government systems, employment systems. Now, this week, we're looking at marriage system. He's not calling them out of these systems that we find ourselves operating in, but he's also saying, I want you to live in a way in the system that transforms it, that you're not going to be home and comfortable. And sort of in that, too, he's implicitly maybe... Um, exhorting them not to follow like this worldly pull to look to society for approval because you're not going to find it there. You're not going to feel at home there. And then also he explicitly commands these Christians to, again, this is in 2.11, to abstain from passions of the flesh that war against your soul, right? Those destructive emotions, that we can give ourselves to. And Peter says, and this theme is going to continue through now into chapter 3, Peter says the reason you should abstain from those passions of the flesh is so that even pagan Gentiles of the first century Asia would be able to praise God, that they would understand God more and, be, and actually come to love him and praise him by the time of Christ's return. So again, that's kind of this broader context as we go into these passages. George worked through these societal stations um, of government systems, employment, and again, now we are looking at marriage, when you're operating in a marriage. So in these, and so I'm doing, in case this isn't obvious, I'm doing the first six verses on the women. George is doing the verse on husbands. Um, okay, so the first six verses, what we see is a command, a consequence, a how-to, and an exemplar. 
And that command starts with likewise. So right as a reader, we should ask, like what? <laughs> so when it says wives, likewise, Peter's referring back to what he'd been working through as citizens to government, as employees. And there he says, like, as citizens, be subject out of fear of the Lord, that awe and reverence to God. When he talks about um, 218 to employees, or I'm sorry, to, to governments, it's for the Lord's sake. Same idea, only different words. To employees, it's with that respect and awe and fear. He goes on saying, being mindful of God, right? Employees are to subject themselves, being mindful of God because of what Christ has done for you, because how Christ suffered on your behalf. So the likewise to Christian wives means with awe and reverence to God, remembering Christ's suffering for your sake. And then he goes to the command. Christian wives, be subject to your own husbands. The Christian wife is not to be subject to all husbands. She's not to be subject to all men. She's not to be subject to all of society. She's to learn to be subject to her own husband. And then there's the consequence. So that even if some do not obey the word, they're going to be won over without a word. Right? He's saying the witness of one's life can speak so much louder than any words. And again, that fits this pattern in discussion that he's been talking about since government systems, employment, now in marriage. He's saying that the way Christians act can actually draw others to come to understand God better and know him and praise him by the time of Christ's return. If you are a Christian, our motivation is to the love of God and a winsome witness. And then Peter gets into the how-to he says, by the conduct of their wives, when they see their respectful and pure conduct, not by outward adorning, but by inward adorning, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in God's sight. Right? He's saying that inner values outweigh the outer appearance. This is not some new idea for women, right? Even so, the, um, the original audience, those first century Christians, even the Greek philosophers of the time, right? This is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire conquered the Greek. But when the Romans hired teachers and scholars, they hired the Greeks. The Greek philosophers were the expert scholars of the day. The Greek philosophers often gave the same exhortation to women to not be overly focused on their outward appearance, but to really be characterized by those inner beautiful attributes. Jewish tradition says the same thing, right? If we think of Proverbs, Proverbs 31, where it says, charm is deceptive and beauty's vain. It's but a passing breath. But a woman who fears the Lord, who lives in that awe and reverence of God is to be praised. She's to be lifted high and honored and recognized. 
The how-to is not saying don't take care of your physical appearance, right? Like we can't lift up this passage and make it the main thing or the only thing. We need to look across the spectrum of the Bible. And certainly there's other biblical passages. In fact, the last time I did the teaching on Ecclesiastes <laughs> was one of those passages where it said, you know, let your garments always be white and don't neglect your physical appearance. Put on beauty products on your hair, right? So this passage, if we put it all together, it's not saying, God's not saying neglect your physical appearance or don't take care of your physical appearance. What he's saying is what you are known for the impression you make on people, the way people remember you, shouldn't be about outward stuff, because that's not going to last. What people should really remember you for and know you for is your inner beauty that's imperishable and precious, precious to God, which also sort of implies, like, who are you trying to please? Your audience should be God. And that's a, you know, that carries over to Ecclesiastes as well. Like, let, your, let God in on how you think about your physical appearance, but don't only focus on the physical appearance. And those inner qualities, what really is most precious in the sight of God is having a gentle and quiet spirit. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, all people <laughs> are called to be gentle by Jesus. When he teaches on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the gentle or the mild or the meek. I mean, that's a, that's a godly quality that all people should seek after, and it brings blessing. And then quietness. Quietness doesn't mean silence. Quietness means you're not agitated. You're not so irritated that you just can't be still or at peace or confident. It means that you're stable and steadfast. Gentle and quiet is not being combative. It's not being angry and argumentative. It's not nagging or being easily irritated. It's not a woman who's bitter and resentful or envious or boastful or rude or arrogant. It's a Christian woman who is patient and kind and gracious. And it's we a Christian wife should be that way because she's at peace again, because of what Christ has done for her, because of that example, that likewise of what Christ has done. When we look at these commands, if we're honest, if you're a Christian woman, they can bring up a lot of questions. <laughs> a lot of questions related to those passions of the flesh that seek to destroy our flesh, right? Those, those destructive emotions. But a lot of that is related to fear. And they're, they're valid questions to ask and look at and face and be real with. Questions like, what if a husband, what if my husband asked me to do something that is wrong? What if my husband is abusive? What if my husband is adulterous? Why is submission 
often in church history pointed at and, and really pinned onto women and rebuked for women, but yet those corresponding passages in verse 7, men don't seem like they're quite held to and exhorted and pinned to to treat their wives as equals and as co-heirs. Again, those questions are valid to look at, and they're worth a discussion. I mean, first of all, this passage is not a universal formula for marriage, right? It says each wife is to figure out what it looks like to submit to be subject to her own husband, right? It's not a cookie-cutter thing. It's not a universal formula. Just, yeah, there's going to be a common thread, of being submissive in marriages, but just as each marriage has unique personalities, the way that actually is played out, there should be some variation there. Um, This passage is not a permission or a script for physical abuse. And I think George is gonna talk about that maybe a little bit too in the next verse. But I just wanna clearly say, it is not loving to stay in an abusive marriage, right? 1 Corinthians 13 says, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. To enable an abusive spouse is not loving. It's it's to keep them in an abusive, destructive, corruptible path. What is loving is to allow consequences. You know, whether it's, church elders coming in and doing consequences, if it's more serious and it's legal consequences, like it is not loving to just enable abuse. Um, Again, we've got to look at all of scripture. This is not the one text that we lift up for marriage. If we look at 1 Corinthians 13, it's certainly God is not condoning abuse in marriage. It's also not permission for adultery. There's other New Testament passages that condemn adultery and allow that as grounds for divorce. It's also not a call to make submission the core issue of marriage. What is actually in view here is voluntary submission. If you notice, Christ is not addressing the husband and telling the husband to enforce and make sure that the wife submits. He's addressing the woman, which by first century standards would have been incredibly honoring because women were not seen as equal citizens. So the fact that Christ is addressing the Christian woman and saying, hey, this is is between you and me, is very honoring. This passage, again, it's not a manual for marriage. It's actually what scholars call a station code. It's addressing Christians who find themselves in the societal station as a wife, and it calls these Christian wives to be gentle and quiet as they're subject to their husbands in order to try to help their husbands be better. And at the same time, so that society around them sees something attractive and has an opportunity to know God better. Again, if we're honest as Christian wives, if you're a Christian and a wife here, we're all going to want to follow the passions of our flesh. (laughs) When we think our husband is wrong or doing something against God, whether that's perceived or actual, 
that's going to war within us. All of us Christian wives in these situations are going to want to be anything but gentle and quiet. We're going to want to fight and argue and be combative. And why? Because we're scared. Because we're scared and we're angry. But more often than not, Christian wives, if we go that route, if we're angry and we're scared and we're combative and we're argumentative, we find it doesn't produce the good and the beauty that we want. What we find generally happens is we end up, right, like corrupting ourselves and destroying ourselves. We end up becoming these irritable, resentful, coming out sideways, snarky people. That is, it's miserable. It's miserable for us. It's miserable for our spouse. It's certainly not attractive to anybody around you. Nobody, I mean, you've seen these marriages, right? They're just snarky and irritated. You don't want to go up and spend time with them. You're kind of like, ooh, I think I'll just take a step away from that. And Peter's saying there's a better way. There's a better way to produce the good that you're looking for. And it, um, and it goes along with this quiet and gentle spirit. But to have that gentle and quiet spirit, that requires confidence. It requires confidence and peace. And the only way I know to get that is by meditating on those earlier verses that Peter talked about in chapter 2 when he said, Christ suffered for your sake. When he was reviled, he didn't revile back. When wrong was done to him, he didn't do wrong back. He went to the tree and bore our curse, and by his wounds, we are healed. When you meditate on Christ's example of what he has done for you, God gives peace. He gives a peace that lets you be gentle, lets you be still, lets you have confidence. I have seen that in my own life, and I've seen that in others' lives. And it's what is attractive, even to an unbelieving Gentile pagan husband of first century Asia Minor. And it's attractive to a pagan, gentle society around a Christian woman. Peter ends with an exemplar of Sarah of the Old Testament. One scholar suggests that it wasn't likely that Peter was referring back to a specific literary reference or set of verses with the calling uh, where Sarah calls him Lord, Maybe that happens kind of indirectly when she's told she's going to have Isaac. Some people uh, link it to when Abraham tragically allows other men to take Sarah as their wives, Pharaoh and Abimelech, possibly. But more likely, um, Peter's reference to Sarah is that like this is the first lady of the covenant of promise. This is the exemplar of faith. Uh, Hebrews 11 says, Sarah, by faith, had the power to conceive. So likely, uh, Peter's really writing about Sarah to give an example to women. 
whether it was Christian wives of first century Asia Minor or Christian wives today, if you look around, you're like, okay, yeah, but what does this look like? Like, I, I don't know who to look to. Peter's saying you can look to Sarah. Sarah, who even in the extreme submits to the questionable wisdom of her husband in a frightening land, in a foreign land, in a frightening situation. Peter's saying, you can look to Sarah to say, it looks like this as you try to like, figure out how to apply it to your unique context. So just to summarize those verses and close for my part, women are given a command to be subject to their husbands out of an awe and reverence for Christ. Christian wives are told how to be subject to their husbands with a gentle and quiet spirit. And Christian women are told why to submit out of a love for God and a desire for others to understand and know and love God better. Using the mic? Okay. Thank you, Deirdre. Good job on that complex passage in such a short amount of time as well. I have tag-teamed sermons with at weddings, but this is the first time ever in a church service. Um, so the, the, the verse, uh, one verse, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So like, as, as Deirdre mentioned, this passage also starts off with this phrase, likewise. And so for the servants, for the wives, and for the husbands, there is a common principle, even though the instructions are different in how to apply the principle for the various uh, places in society and places in family. So that, that principle, it, it goes back to this this statement that Peter makes, he says, for this is what you have been called to. For to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So just like the servants and just like the wives, the husbands are called to do good to those who may be causing them suffering. That's, that's the, the common thread throughout this, this passage. And, and Peter's concern is that they, as the people of God, would have an attractive witness to the world and when you see somebody doing good, even in the midst of suffering, especially if they're doing good to those very people who are causing the suffering in the first place, all you can see is a great deal of, of grace and a great deal of power. And that's, what, and that's what the text says. This is a gracious thing in that 
example pattern of Jesus. And so the husbands are called to live with their wives, and there are two very important words here. One, understanding that they are the weaker vessel. Now, lots of ink has been spilled on what does this mean to be a weaker vessel. It is the, the women are weaker in the fact that generally they have a smaller, weaker frame than men. Men are stronger than women, all right? And, you know, the, the, if you get into some of the, um, you know, all the, the discussions and, and conflicts that have been going around, around gender and sports and men and women and transgender, one of the things that you may have seen is that statistically, in all the elite sports, which they, you know, obviously they have tracking and measurements and speeds, generally women are about 10% slower or less strong or whatever, the elites of the elites, there's this, there's this, women just cannot compete with men from a strength standpoint. That's what he's talking about. And it's likely referring to the temptation that men have to become physically harsh with their wives when their wives are disrespecting them. All right, so the, 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 the only way that the woman is the weaker vessel is that she is not as physically strong as the man. And so the, that's the one, I, one of the important words. The second important word is this word honor. So recognize, men, that you have to live with, your, live with your wife in a way that recognizes that she is weaker physically. And because of the temptation that men have to look down upon their wives because they are weaker and in this vulnerable state as a weaker vessel, they are called to honor them. They are called to hold them to higher esteem. They are called to value them greatly. Those are the two words that men need to hold on to if they are going to follow in this pattern of Christ and extending graciousness to their wives. So recognize husbands that your wife is in a vulnerable position as a weaker person, and rather than give in to the passion and temptation to think of her lightly because of her weaker state, you need to think of her in a higher state. And he explains you need to do this because they are not lesser than you. They are equal with you. They are heirs with you of the grace of life. They are heirs with you of the kingdom of God. They are on the same plane as you. The temptation is to, to consider them as less. And, you know, if we go back to this overall message that, that Deirdre brought out, he begins this entire section from 2.11. He'll go through the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5 even, saying you have to abstain from passions and you have to pursue holiness in the fear of God. The passions that men struggle with in relationship to this, to this relationship that they, that they have with their wives, the two passions that they are going to, that we encounter as husbands, are lust and anger. Lust and anger. And oftentimes, these these passions emerge, these desires emerge when we are feeling disrespected. And the temptation that men have, and I'm speaking from over 29 years of experience as a husband and a lot of failure. If there's one thing that, that brings me to tears as a husband and as a father, it, it has 
it's that I have not self-disciplined myself to control this particular passion of anger. We feel disrespected, and there's two things that we want when disrespected. We want, first of all, we want to be respected. We want comforted because it's painful us, painful for us to be disrespected. And oftentimes in our pursuit of comfort, we'll pursue sexual immorality. We will also pursue anger because anger gives us a sense of power. So in that pursuit of power and in that pursuit of comfort, we will pursue these, these passions. And they are nothing but sinful. They are nothing but sinful. And what we men do is we, we justify our anger, we justify our wrath, we justify our malice, we justify our harsh speech because we say, well, I have been disrespected. You have not done what you're supposed to do, wife, or you have not done what you're supposed to do, child. That's why I'm angry and I'm justified. You've sinned against me, I'm justified in sinning against you. And that is exactly the mindset. That point is exactly the mindset that Peter's addressing in this whole passage. Jesus, as king and creator and sustainer of all things, all right, was in the foremost position of being honored and respected and glorified. But he came to earth. He came to his people, and we mistreated him. We reviled him, and we caused him to suffer. And it says here, when he was reviled, he did not revile. When he suffered, he did not threaten. This is the point that has to drive our relationships with everyone. That's, and this is, this is why this principle is going to go through this entire book. Husbands, men, when you are disrespected, when you are feeling angry, when you are feeling lustful because you want to be comforted, you have to, you, I mean, let's jump to the solution. <laughs> we have to return to what Peter calls the living hope. Our hope is not going to be found in our wives fulfilling our desires. We long for comfort. We long for intimacy. We long for a sense of belonging that, that our wives in God's perfect creation would have been able to fulfill. But in the, in, in the state that we are in where, where we have been enslaved to sin and now called to righteousness in Christ, we cannot expect our wives to fulfill all of our hopes and dreams and desires. We can't expect our wives to respect us. And like Deirdre pointed out, it was, it's not the husband's responsibility to enforce the instruction to the wives. We have to return to the living hope. The living hope is Jesus Christ, his resurrection from the dead. He is the one that brings life back to the deadness that we experience. When we are suffering because we've been disrespected, when we are suffering because of whatever, unjust or just, when we are suffering, we need to recognize that in our pursuit of Christ, in our, what Peter says, being mindful of God, remembering what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, for his people, 
the way for our society to get past these conflicts between men and women and husbands and wives is to, is to recognize that Jesus Christ is the only hope that can meet the needs that we feel inside. The need for respect, the need for comfort, the need to belong, these are the things that Christ can and does fulfill. So we have to return to that living hope, and we have to return to our calling. He says, it is for this you have been called. And he's not just talking specifically to Christians. He's talking to all of humanity. He wants, God is wanting to bring all people back to his kingdom. He's wanting to build a people. He's wanting to build a society. He's wanting to build a kingdom. And he's calling all people to this place of restored relationships with him and restored relationships with each other. He's called all people. For this you have been called, to endure suffering while doing good. So whether we're talking about wives or whether we're talking about husbands, we need to really get that into our minds. God has called us to endure suffering, to endure evil, and to continue to do good in that context. It removes all of our ability to justify evil responses and puts us into a place where God is, has asked us and called us to do good while we suffer, regardless of the reason for that suffering. And if again, it's it's a call to it's being mindful of this. We're going to hit Second Peter after this sermon, after this sermon series. He says, you know, if you don't possess these qualities, if you don't possess these qualities, it's because you've forgotten your former sins. You've forgotten that Christ suffered in order to free you from sin. You've forgotten that Christ suffered in order to make you a slave of righteousness. And so as we think about our relationships as husbands and wives, if we want, you know, and Deirdre had this point clearly, if wives really want to see their husbands change, they got to follow in that pattern of Christ. If men really want to see their wives change, They've got to follow in the pattern of Christ. It's the only hope, and it's the only way out of this ongoing conflict that husbands and wives will experience. Let me pray real quick.